and how the great tension exists between God's sovereign choices and our human choices related to the beginnings and the endings of life and many opportunities in between. First of all, have you, have you thought this thought before? Um, when you show up on this planet, how many decisions did you make about what was going to go on there? Have you thought about the million data points that God and sovereignty starts the ball rolling? For every human being. You don't pick your time frame. You don't pick your race. You don't pick your language, your economic scenario. You don't pick your location on the planet. You don't pick anything. You show up. God has made all those decisions for you. But then stop and think about the fact that God respects you enough, trusts you enough that he actually gives you all kinds of choices related to a number of those details, but even up to and including how long your life lasts or how long the lives of other people around you last. Have you ever thought about the respect involved in that? Have you ever thought about how dangerous that is, that God gave us that much control? It's a remarkable scenario. We get to choose from the earliest moments, is this life going to come forth? We get to choose. We get to choose at the latest moments, how long is this going to go? We get to choose all kinds of things in between. In fact, if you stop and think about this, abortion, murder, suicide, genocide, and euthanasia all have a ton of things in common with one another. If you know the model of a Venn diagram where you put things up and there's overlap in the middle on things that are in common, those issues have a ton of common ground between them. There's both God's sovereignty involved and human choice involved. There's all kinds of factors. It is never simple. Never. Now, my great question would be, why would God put it to where life and death decisions are always so complex? And it's a very simple answer. It's actually a model of the way everything works in our relationship between us and our existence, between us and our consciousness, and God wants to be a part of that discussion. And if it's complicated enough, and we're honest with ourselves and humble enough, we'll actually turn to God for information and for impact. If not, what we'll do is we'll just simplify it, and we'll just go, oh, okay, well, this is, this is, it's no more difficult than this. It's always more difficult than that. All of those topics, abortion, murder, suicide, genocide, euthanasia, cross through the journey of every single human being on their, on their time. They all do. And they're all far more complicated than what we want to make it to be. And the reason we try to simplify it is because then we can just have a simple pat answer. We don't have to get caught in the mess and in the weeds and worry about it. That's what has gone on. 
most of it is fear why we don't go in. It's fear. It's complicated. One of my favorite authors says this in, in his ethics books. He says, when there is a very complex issue and its complexity requires sufficient complex study, then we must also have a corresponding complex response. No bumper stickers. No simple forward slogans. No things to just throw at each other that are just oversimplifications of everything. If you remember when I talked a couple weeks ago about the issue of immigration, and I said, if we reduce the whole discussion of immigration to the wall, that's ridiculous. It's this much of the discussion. And the same thing is true when it comes to these issues. Abortion, genocide, murder, suicide, euthanasia, the end of life. I mean, you have to actually stop and ask yourself this question. How, how do we get the best information as to what God's heart, God's hopes are for us, and God's plan, and his, his, his uh, model, his mind for us? And it's not just as simple as just finding three Bible verses and making a simple decision from that. It way over, oversimplifies everything. Not only did God trust us and like show this amazing sense of worth and value to us by allowing us to have choice related to life and death, he remarkably enters the world in what form? Did God come in the form of a fungus? Okay, it's laughably ridiculous. But was that a possible option? God's God. It's God. Did he come in the form of a plant? Come in the form of a rock? He didn't even just come in the form of one of the higher animals. I think we forget sometimes, even though... We know in the back of our minds how complex the issue is, but the fact that God chose a human form to come and live as a human gives us the most incredible sense of worth and value and importance. That It's, it's unimaginable the gap that then forms between humanity and every universe. At the same time, he didn't make it simple for us to be those creatures. Let me ask you, we, we talk about murder. When Jesus died on the cross, was that murder? Well, he was complicit in it. But does that mean that Jesus committed suicide on the cross? Well, he was complicit in it, but he didn't think his value of his life, he didn't think it was worthless and decide to just give up on life. What would have happened if Jesus would have been brought into a society where the usual story of a mom in the condition of Mary would have likely ended up in an abortion? What's that about? 
What would have happened if Jesus would have aged out? Do you hear all the complexity of this? And he didn't simplify it. He didn't. He made it, in fact, more complex to illustrate to us that this whole thing, there's something going on here, and there's a lot more going on than what we can just choose to say, okay, here's my easy answer. They're not easy answers. Now, we do have some data in the background. Uh, C.S. Lewis called it the moral law or the natural law. We're going to hear about this in the passage that we're going to study. By the way, you're going to be surprised by this passage that I chose to study related to this whole discussion because it's not the obvious one. The obvious one would be to go to Genesis 1 and 2, say, okay, we were, we were image bearers. We've been given these two jobs. We need to bring life into the world and multiply and spread out. And we need to be about bringing order to chaos. Those are our two job descriptions. Well, those are true, and those are in the background of all of this. But I think there's some actual discussion where we get a little more insight into what God's thinking and what he's feeling related to human beings and this great interplay with life. I think we've got another passage. But Lewis described this thing that actually comes up in this passage we're going to look at. That is, everybody has a sense in the back of their mind that they know about the value of life. Lewis called it the moral law, the natural law. There's a a place at which you have this just, it's an intuitive thing. And all of you who have been a part of anything related to beginning or ending of life understand this. How many of you have been in for a birth? If you're a mom, you have to raise your hand. Okay, yeah, that's that's exactly right. How many of you that have just observed? Well, you you see, there's a number of us who have just observed. Do you remember the observation of the birth? Absolutely you remember the observation. Wait, did it completely surprise you? Did you expect the baby to come out of the ear? No, right? That's the wrong canal. There's another canal, but it ain't that one. And, I mean, you knew the facts, but I'm telling you, when you're in there, it's one of the most profound experiences you ever have in your life. Why? It's just another. There's been billions of these born. Why is it so profound? We know it connects us into something that's much greater. It's going on. How many of you have been in a room when somebody died? A number of you. And not all the, just the older people. Again, you think, oh, well, this is probably how this is going to go. It goes differently than the way you expect. And then the profundity and the weight of it on you and the others around you is remarkable. And the, the reaction, some people freak out. And other people are so peaceful. It's an amazing scenario. Life and death has this amazing and incredible connection to God that is something that is far more than just a simple answer that you toss at it. Now, I'm not going to read those chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 where God talks about our, our kind of our job description, but I do want this to be going on in the background. What happens in chapter 3? You know this one. The fall. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was perfect. Probably a BSF person that knew that. That's my, that's my guy. I don't know. But uh, the fall, the first sin. What happens at the beginning of chapter 4? 
the brothers, Cain and Abel. You think it's a coincidence that we're about 40 words into the Bible and the first murder occurs? Not a coincidence. A very huge description, power of life, the necessity of life, and the threat and the risk to life that's inherent. And you know what happens in the back half of chapter 4 and into chapter 5? It's the first list of the generations, the genealogy. How many of you really love reading the genealogies? Come on, there's a couple of you. No, there's nobody there. Okay. Well, the genealogies, though, I, now having learned what they mean, here's what they do. Here's how they function in the Bible. There's some kind of major threat. There's a problem. It could be as big as a global flood. It could be the hordes from Babylon are coming over the hill. It could be we've been trapped in Egypt for 400 years. And the reason the generations show up is it's the description of God's rescue. It's the solution. It's the God saying, there's consequences from these decisions you make. And Cain and Abel's point, it's the first murder. But instead of saying, I'm getting rid of all of you, God keeps it moving. He brings the rescue. He brings redemption. He brings solution. That's the cycle that goes all the way through the Old Testament. Every time there's a generations, the Hebrew word, the toledots, every time that shows up, it's a response to show, oh, we're out of the woods. We're out of the woods. We're out of the dark. Whatever that, that thing is that they sing, right? We're, there's, there's salvation. We're still going. Now, never forget that in the background of all of the writings of the Bible, that's what's happening. There's this mechanism of threat, constant threat hanging over either the Jews or all of humanity or whatever the discussion is about, a family, a tribe, whatever. And so the thought of... Do we just cast off our elders? That made no sense through all. The, or the thought of we just get rid of our newborns. That made no sense in this scenario. You have to remember that. That's going in the background. Always read it through that lens. But know this. God has, he has a plan in mind. We've talked about this from the very first week, that God is about bringing human dignity and human flourishing to every scenario. I want you, as we're going to read this Bible passage, I want you to listen through here. How does this connect with flourishing and with dignity? How did... Stop and think about it. Think about the entire journey of Jesus' life. How did that connect with flourishing and dignity? The other thing that we've established are three warnings because they're part of our societal bias. They're part of our societal conversation. One is individualism, autonomy, freedom, personal choice that seems to outweigh anything else or anybody around us. A second, that's a danger. It's a trap. It's a great gift to be enabled to make decisions that way, but it's a trap if you're not careful. The second one is safety, and the safety is not about just is this thing going to kill me or not. The safety is about control over circumstances. 
We want to be sure that nobody gets hurt. We'll bubble wrap our kids to send them to school and put them on the bus. That's about control more than it's actually about the actual safety. The third thing is this. That's compassion. It's the most confusing because we don't mean compassion like selflessness. We mean compassion like, I just don't want you to feel bad, so I want to show tolerance for everything that you think and do because of, number one, autonomy. You should be free to make any choice that you want. It's your own. It doesn't affect anybody else, apparently. Those are traps. So when we look at this passage to try to access God's heart and mind about what he would like us to think about life, let's see what we can find out. I, I'm going to read. This is Romans chapter 1, by the way. If you have your personal electronics devices, you may get those out, or there's Bibles in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to jump in about verse 13. And... Uh, I'll stop a couple places, but we'll go on. Do, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. This is a Paul, the apostle. This is his magnum opus as he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. And he's going to now introduce what's going on. I wanted to come to you many times, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Who are non-Greeks? The Jews. Yeah, the Jews are the non-Greeks. Greeks as anybody who's a Gentile. The Jews are non-Greeks. Now, just so you know this in the background, the church in Rome had a number of people that were Jewish in background and a number of people who were Roman in background. Think about the diversity between their cultural scenarios that they bring to the church. And in that, they're saying, wow, we, we know what we're doing. You, know, you don't know what you're doing. You can imagine there was fighting between them. So a lot of this letter, and if you think forward, if you know this book well enough, 9, 10, and 11 is a whole discussion about what's going on between the Jews and God and how that affects the Greeks and God. So Paul's setting that up right here. I'm obligated both to Greeks and Jews, both to the wise and the foolish. That will show up here in a bit. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the famous verse, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first. Why? Because the Jews are more important? No, the Jews have the information up front. The Gentiles don't. And Paul's just trying to kind of level the playing field in the information in this book. Never forget, that's always his purpose in this book. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous one will live by faith, a quote that's used all over in the New Testament. Now, what we typically do is we hear that and we go, oh, well, this book is all going to be about faith. He doesn't even hardly mention faith for chapters now. In chapter 4, he talks about the faith of Abraham at length. But most of what he's going to do now is set the foundation underneath from creation that says this is what human beings have done. And quite typically, human beings have not managed their information very well. That's just the truth. So here's what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of 
people, a generic term that includes both Jews and Gentiles, by the way. And now that's pretty harsh to start here, but what Paul will do, and you know if you've read this, you go through two where he talks harsh to the Jews. In one, he talks harsh to the Gentiles. In three, he talks harsh to everybody. There's no one who does righteous, not one. We're all sinners. We are broken people who are a million miles away from being qualified to be like God and say we think and behave like God. We don't. That's not to demean anybody. That's actually to put everybody in the exact same boat. And that's what he's going to do over these next few verses. These people, excuse me, the wrath of God is being revealed against, uh, from heaven against all the godlessness, the wickedness of people who, this is what they do. They suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. We tend to go, oh, see, God created the world to where we can understand him. This is the moral law. People know inside. Let me make this very simple for you. When we're talking discussions of abortion, of genocide, of euthanasia, whatever, You don't have to tell people that life is valuable. They know. They know. It's woven into the fabric of the heart. Now, what this will give us is a little bit of what's going on with that data. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. So in other words, as you continue to live in, there may be confusion about that. We'll talk about that at the very end. But it's still, you don't have to convince someone of what sin is. They know. They do. They may have figured out a way to justify something. We all do it, by the way. That's what we have in common. But we know intuitively what's really best and what isn't. We know that. Because it's plain to us. Go to the next slide. Maggie, thank you. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The emphasis is not on the excuse. The emphasis is on people have been given the data. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, you hear the wise and the foolish. Thankfully, Paul said, I came to both, but you hear the wise and the foolish. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal human being and animals and reptiles and volcanoes and the ocean and the wind and everything else we could think of. Why did we do that? Why did human beings... This is talking about idolatry, which is rule number one of the Ten Commandments, right? This is talking about idolatry. Why do people do that? Why would you rather trust in something that you could fashion rather instead of gleaning from a relationship with the one true living God who literally wants that relationship with you. Why would we do that? If you ask yourself that question honestly, it's fear. It's not the cynical answer we all do with, oh, they're all just so full of sin they can't even see the truth. No. If that was true, why would Paul even write this? If it wasn't going to have any impact, why would he even talk about it? People know, we have it inside of us, 
That's part of what is actually part of your journey when you chose to say, wait, I think I'm on the wrong trail here. Why did you come to that? Because you know. But we push him back and we, we replace God with other things because we're afraid, we can't see him, whatever else we use a thousand justifications and excuses. That's the first response. Now, here's what happens. This is what God did. Therefore, God gave them over. That does not mean God flushed them down the toilet. This is going to come up three times in this passage. It means God said, have it your way. Have it your way. How many of you as parents have watched your kid getting prepared to do something that's really stupid? Not in his or her best interest. And you did the, yeah, some of you immediately, the hand goes, the hand shoots up. And you watched the process, and you did the math, and you realized, I could stop this, or I could let them feel the full repercussions of this. Have it your way. This is not God hates them now, and in fact, Jesus would have never come, and Paul wouldn't even be... Remember, he's telling the story of the gospel, why the gospel is viable. The gospel is viable because people have turned away, and as God let them have their way, and they worsened in the scenario. The worst one, though, is actually the first one, that they turned to idolatry. The second one is this. In the sin, God gave them over to this process in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve creative things rather than the creator who's forever praised. This has a two-part thing. One of it connects back to idolatry and it introduces the next idea of sexual sins. People know it's not in your best interest to just do whatever you feel like with your sexuality. Everybody knows that. But we're all trying to come up with a reason why we don't have to live into that. So God gave them over to shameful lusts. The women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Go to the next one. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What's the penalty? The penalty is you're not getting the natural flow of those rescues, the generations. At that point in time in history, there's no reproduction that's going to go on. Right? That's not going to happen. And then the natural outcome is, if you're living in a time and a place where everything is about trying to make sure the next generation comes so that the story goes forward and God has the rescue continuing, why in the world would you engage in this activity? That's where this is coming from. It's not a commentary on what the heart wants. And furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so then God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to do. Now look at this list. This is fascinating. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Now all those sound terrible, right? Let's go to the next slide. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Everybody would agree that's a terrible idea. They're gossips. Oh, wait. 
Where does social media fit in there? I forget. The slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. What do those things have to do with each other in the same list? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Wait, what? That's in this list? They have no understanding. They have no fidelity. They have no love. They have no mercy. Clearly, Paul is not building a straight line from worst to best or best to worst. Paul is clearly saying all of these things that we all experience as being less than what God's plan is for us and his heart for us, all of these things have great consequences. They're just different kinds of consequences. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And there's the cultural bias. It becomes part of the general conversation to say, That's, there's no problem with that. That's okay. we got this higher value over here. You need to do what you want to do because you're you. Be yourself. You can turn that off, Maggie. I, I've asked us to consider something that's tough. But I want to I give you this question and then hopefully some considerations. How do we, you, me, who have reflected on, who have read the narratives, who have studied the, the commands, who have considered the life of Jesus, how do we bring that information to the discussion in a society that has different, different biases? And different values. How do we do that? There's no simple answer. Again, these are complex issues. Abortion is complex. It's not simple. End-of-life decisions are complex. They're not simple. Murder, suicide, genocide, all those. We're going to talk about war and engaging with a sense of national security we're going to talk about that in two weeks, building on the platform some of this perspective. So how do we enter in there? I'm going to suggest this. First of all, we listen. But we lift, listen with a posture to actually learn. Actually hear what the other person is experiencing, what they have to say. We're listening for things that are that show great courage great character great we're listening for those so that we of course can in, engage and say that's spectacular how can i help how can i be a part of that but we're also listening for the next step the next step is by listening and engaging and being a part of the story you earn the right to make some observations about some things that maybe miss what God's best plan is. And this is about reminding people. It's not about convincing them of anything. It's about reminding what God's heart... Like, people know that life is valuable. Nobody wants their dad and the dead body of their dad to be just chucked out in a field somewhere. It's got value. His body has value. Nobody wants just to say, well, 
I've had four kids. That's enough kids. I guess I'll just throw this one out in the dumpster. How do we respond to that? Does that feel okay to us? Nobody thinks that's a good idea. We don't have to convince. But what we can do is earn the right to engage and say, huh, where does life really fit? Where are these decisions? How do we make these complex decisions? How do we engage? This is the only illustration I'll use in this whole sermon. When I was in California, I uh, worked with a group that was helping families in crisis find a, a temporary home for their kiddos while the parents went through some kind of a, a recovery process. And it was training churches to provide homes for that situation. I was part of a bigger group in Riverside County in California called Prevent Child Abuse in Riverside County. Now, interesting, I had that value in common with Reina Ruiz, who was the regional director for Planned Parenthood. Uh, the Coachella Valley, she was in charge of that whole thing, 135,000 people. That's a big area. She had a very active chapter in that area. We did some different works and some different things together. We ended up in some subcommittees together. And as I'm watching and engaging with Reina, I'm realizing this is one amazingly smart person. And she is super passionate for the best interests of this community. So one day we were working on something, and there's just three of us around the table, and I'm like, hey, you know, we're supposed to be hated enemies. You realize that, because I'm like a church guy, and you're Planned Parenthood, and we're supposed to hate each other. And we both laughed about that, because we knew each other well enough at that point that we could laugh about it. And I said, you want to get together and get a coffee and just talk about, like, what motivates? Why do you keep going into work? Why do I go to work every day? She said, I would love that. Our first coffee was two and a half hours. And we talked point-counterpoint on some of the discussion issues, the topics. And we talked anecdotes, this family story, that family story. And we learned. We learned to understand each other. And I'll tell you right now, first of all, I'm very, very grateful that I crossed that divide. I think it's a, a problem when pastors and churches are so isolated that they don't ever get to have those conversations. But the interesting thing is I never felt like, i got to talk this girl into shutting down every Planned Parenthood in Coachella or in California. I didn't have to do that. In fact, there were a couple of times when I would say, you know, if I could do anything just to change the focus where abortion wasn't just the common form of contraception, but was actually in, in a case that was more complicated than that. It wasn't just instead of the 50 other things that we have as options for contraception. And I still remember her going, huh. She literally had never thought the thought. Now, I'm not saying she's dumb. She's not. She just had never heard anybody who'd earned the right to actually say, this is where I'm coming from. I spoke on some other issues. She spoke on some of her issues. She said, what am I supposed to do with this family? This mom has four kids. 
They're all different dads. There's no man in the house, and she's pregnant with the fifth. Is that in the best interest of our society and our community? Good point. I suggest that we stop throwing our slogans and our bumper stickers at people, our rhetoric, and we instead engage. There's opportunities in this community, both on both ends of the spectrum. There's opportunities wherever you go. And to find the way to engage with people with dignity and flourishing in mind. And honestly, bring them the heart and the hopes and the dreams and the head and the plan of God and bring it to the conversation. Let's pray. Lord, it's uh, tough, super tough. We uh, obviously could go way down these channels and way down the trails. But um, I think first we need to establish what we know has happened in human history and the traps that we can avoid, and the, um, the places where we can navigate with grace, and we can actually be part of the rescue. Help us to be part of the rescue. You know what's best, but help us to always move, as Jesus did in that way, to be part of the rescue, the solution. And give us great courage Give us depth of insight. Give us the uh, intensity to go and learn more and engage with people and find out. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.